0: Hello and welcome to the Pursuit of Infinity Podcast. I'm Josh, one of your two hosts, and today I have a very special interview with social psychologist Dr. Kevin Payne. Kevin has a wealth of knowledge in social psychology and works to help people to live their lives well while battling chronic illness. He himself has been battling multiple sclerosis since 1989, which happens to be the year of my birth. And also, he's a fully licensed skydiver. You definitely do not want to miss this one. He was one of my favorite people to talk to with so many interesting insights and inspirations. Um, And you can find all the links to his socials, his website, his book down below in the show notes. But before we get to the interview, I would just like to request that you leave a five-star rating for this podcast on any platform of your choice. Also, please consider visiting our Patreon at patreon.com slash pursuit of infinity and we're also on Instagram at Pursuit of Infinity Pod. All of those links will also be in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening and please welcome our guest, Dr. Kevin J. Payne. Hi kevin thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it glad to be here so uh why don't we start off by uh just sort of explaining who you are and what you do
1: (laughs) start off with with the
0: big question right josh for sure let's get right into it all
1: right uh i guess there are probably three things that are important to know about me one is that uh, my my I'm I'm overeducated. I, I, I've got a doctorate in sociology and psychology, and I've spent the last 30 years studying people. And the last decade, I've focused on the question, how can we still live well, even when we're sick? And that brings us to the second uh, crucial thing to probably know about me, and that is... I live with multiple sclerosis, and I've had MS for, well, I've been symptomatic since 89, and it went undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for a long time there. And that's not unusual with MS at all. I was finally correctly diagnosed in 2006. So living with MS, and for people who don't know what MS is, it's an autoimmune condition, that... Causes our central nervous system, our brain, and our spinal cord to degenerate, and because everything we think, feel, do, say goes through our brain and our spinal cord, uh, that means the symptoms can be almost anything. Uh, and uh, probably the third thing that that your listeners will be interested in is, in spite of all that, I am an enthusiastic skydiver and i I came back to the sport in 2019 and that's a whole big story i'm sure we'll get into and i've i've logged 600 jumps since and and I'm i'm a regular fully licensed rated skydiver
0: so why does it generally take so long and in your case why did it take so long to properly diagnose your symptoms as ms
1: because ms symptoms are are potentially almost anything uh so in other words a lot of people you know in the popular mind ms is oh one of those that put you in a wheelchair right and and that's kind of the way we think about it and and that is true that that can happen and certainly leg issues are one of my personal challenges uh, and and sometimes they'll go spastic. Sometimes I have difficulty walking. I I never, almost never. And, and actually, we can get into this. It's a little better now, but I uh, I don't have feeling below my knees. And and so that's certainly part of it. But I'm always in pain. So chronic pain is part of it. I'm always fatigued. So I'm always tired. Uh, You know, the best I ever get, even if I get a good night's sleep and I do everything right, which I do most of the time, the best I get is tired. And there's always cognitive fog that's going around. It's always, you know, uh, a a little bit confusing and a little bit fuzzy around the edges of my world. And, And so... Those are all things that that are very common with m s and that I certainly live with as well.
0: How do you find that you keep your mental clarity during uh, painful situations
1: Well, I had to and, and, and this is this is kind of an interesting thing because I, there was a, there was a time uh, where. My pain became so overwhelming. I was popping like twenty or more ibuprofen a day, and and I refused to go on an opioid for it because uh, just personally, I I, I didn't want to go there. I didn't want that challenge that went along with it because I'd I'd already known the research surrounding that at the time, and I thought that's just that's just not a uh, a, a, an additional challenge that I wanted to take on at, at that point. So, for me, managing pain was about retraining my brain and reframing the experience. And so, I still feel pain, I still feel that pain is there. It's just not overwhelming. And it's probably fair to say I've reframed it so that I don't care any longer. And, and I did that through meditation and exercise and just rebuilding some different habits. And in the way that I, I negotiated my world, even though it is has got this layer of pain over it.
0: Yeah. That kind of, uh, brings me to uh, a quote that I found on your website, which was, uh, most of our challenges uh, are non-medical. And I, I think, uh, you covered the, um, the changing of behaviors, uh, type of portion of it. Um, so does the, does your background in psychology assist you in changing the way that you approach, uh, like the, Altering of your behaviors?
1: Oh, it's crucial. It's crucial. It, it is one of those things that <clears throat> you know, after I was diagnosed and I knew what I was dealing with, I started getting into the research surrounding MS. And then that wasn't enough. I was interested in other conditions because what what I'm interested in as a social psychologist, is is not diagnosis specific it's about well how do we deal with the experience of life with a chronic health condition that is not going to go away how do we deal with that experience and that's really crucial because by definition a chronic health Condition is something that medicine doesn't have a cure for. they may someday, but they don't now, and I still have a life to live. I can't wait until medicine figures it out. so for me, I was interested in how can I use my education to help myself, but more important, to help other people as well because I've had, I've had the privilege of being really educated in a field that I care about a lot and, and a lot of people don't have that luxury and, and, and I got that. And so that means that I think because I had that privilege, I have an obligation to pull something out of that that's going to be useful and and so for me that's why over the last decade i've i've focused on how do we live well with a health condition that's not going to go away and and that began with me and understanding my own conditions but then you know, I'm a, I'm a scientist. Research methodology is my primary specialization, so I did the research. And so I interviewed hundreds. I surveyed thousands. I built a scraper that went out on the web and collected 2.23 million data points. I did meta-analyses across thousands of studies because I think we get too caught up sometimes in our specific diagnosis. And that's really crucial. And I don't want to downplay that because that gives us uh, a label to hang it on and a way to understand it. But it also gives us access within the medical system to crucial treatments and supports. But day in and day out, that I have MS doesn't really help me better cope. What I live with is the experience of, oh, my legs aren't working right now or, oh, I'm in pain or, oh, I'm really fatigued. And and there can be lots of different medical causes for that. And, and obviously, as we've already said, medicine can only do so much to help us. We've, we, but we are not just bodies. We're bodies with brains and minds and behaviors and relationships and environments. And all of those things can be tweaked and, and modified to to adapt to a life that we care more about and that we want to be engaged with. So as a social psychologist who not only lives with a chronic illness, but spent many years supporting a, you know, a wife who was dealing with a very advanced cancer, You know, I lived it not only as diagnosed, but as caregiver. And, you know, I, my educational background gave me kind of a unique set of concerns and a different lens into having this experience.
0: So how were you able to manage while dealing with your own symptoms, also balancing the fact that you had to care for your wife?
1: Oh, I, I evidently I sucked on it, and and evidently she did too. It it completely blew up our relationship, and and we'd known each other for decades, and uh, had gone through a lot to to do that. But but year after year after year after year of two chronic illnesses in the house completely blew up our family. And and that's another reason why I devoted myself to what I'm doing now. Because even though I had the education, that's the knowing of it. That's not the understanding of living it. And And I wished that I had somebody who could provide me with a better framework for understanding and living it. Back when I was first diagnosed or she was first diagnosed, right? And, 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 and if I can do anything to help others not go through that level of pain and heartbreak and awfulness that I went through, then that means that, that I've pulled something good out of something really bad.
0: Why don't we um, backtrack and sort of begin um, with you sort of explaining uh, your first sort of symptoms and how you were diagnosed? Sure. So back
1: in 1989, I had, I, I had just turned 20 when this started. And I was in college, and I was in a really demanding undergraduate academic program. And so it was stressful. So I started having weird experiences. My, my balance started just kind of going wonky on me. I started itching everywhere. Uh, I was tired. I was uh, mentally kind of foggy. And I got really down about the whole thing. Because that's a lot of little weird, kind of squishy, hard to define symptoms that are that are going on, and so after a few months of that, I I went to the physician, and he diagnosed me as clinically depressed. I was like, oh, okay, you know that uh, that could certainly be it and And I certainly had those symptoms, but I also had some other symptoms that were not associated with you know the depression, so he sent me on to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist confirmed that I was dealing with a major depression and put me on drugs and I tried the first one it didn't work. I tried the second one it didn't work. I tried the third one it didn't work and so my diagnosis got. Added with the tag "treatment resistant," <laughs> and and so they just kind of left it at that. And then a few months later, I I felt better again, and kind of went back into my normal life. And so then there were were spells of this sort of thing that kind of came and went over the next few years. And and the worst one was was in the late '90s, and. By this time, I had gone through all the coursework from my doctorate. I'd I'd set my comprehensive exams. And I was now uh, teaching at a couple of universities and I was writing on my dissertation. And the wheels just came off my life. I was, you know, again, dealing with the fatigue and the cognitive fog. And I didn't know what it was, and I slipped into a, a really deep depression. And this time, in under two years, I gained 120 pounds. I I went from what, what had normally been a 27-inch waist to barely squeezing into a 46-inch pan. And so everything had just kind of come apart, and, and I didn't really understand what it was. so. One morning, I wake up and I walk into the bathroom and I look at myself in the mirror and it was like I was really seeing myself for the first time in a couple of years. And I thought, oh my gosh, I look like the guy who ate Kevin. <laughs> so I very slowly, very carefully started trying to rebuild the habits that I had lost in my life and started exercising again, stopped eating out all the time. I I stopped, you know, up to that time, I had probably uh, drunk two liters or more of Mountain Dew a day for years. And, you know, I quit soft drinks, I I started exercising again, I I started eating healthy again, I, I started meditating again. And uh you know within the next couple of years i was back down to a me that i could recognize so so yeah within 4 years there i gained and lost 120 pounds and and life was back on you know i i got my dissertation finished and and uh, you know we we settled down and started having you know a family and and uh went on with my professor career and then things were going pretty well until 2002 And in 2002, I woke up one morning, and I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. I thought, that's kind of weird. But I figured I'd just overdone my workout the day before, maybe pinched a nerve or something like that. So I didn't think a lot about it. And in a few days, it was back to normal. And I thought, okay, that's good. And, and, And then it was gone again and then back. And then it started happening with different body parts and i just lived with this for a while and until finally one morning i woke up and i could feel my right arm and my head but the rest of my body was gone and at this point my then wife said i'm putting my foot down you're going to go get this looked at so i did and and that kickstarted you know a series of consults and tests and stuff like that and uh, I I eventually walked away with or limped away with an MS diagnosis, and so that was, you know, and and by this time it's 2006, so a relatively common story with MS. It it takes a long time to diagnose because it's it's often a diagnosis of exclusion. They they go through all of the other more likely explanations. That, that it could be until, you know, you're left with, with MS. And then in my case, once they got a high-quality MRI, uh, they could tell that there had been lesions all through my brain and spinal cord and had been around for a long time.
0: Did you find that there was a sense of, like, relief knowing what it was that was going on with you finally having a diagnosis? You betcha
1: and and that's really common it's uh, on the one hand it's it's never pleasant to get a diagnosis like that but it is such a relief to have a name for for what the weirdness is and it's such a relief to then have a body of knowledge that you can start kind of diving into and and helping yourself understand more of what it is you're dealing with and of course it's it's really crucial to get that label to get that diagnosis so that you can get access to whatever medical care is available at the time and you know of course it's not they're not going to cure me and and they may may or may not come up with a cure in my lifetime I, I'd be delighted if they did but There are good disease-modifying drugs for MS out there. And a DMD is is not a drug that is, is helping my symptoms, for example. But what it does mean is that over the course of this disease, I am likely to have less degeneration and likely to maintain a higher level of functioning for longer, and likely to have fewer exacerbations and less serious exacerbations. So that's all good.
0: So what was your treatment plan upon discovering that MS was your diagnosis? Did your doctor sort of go over um, like a multi step treatment plan? Was there like any setbacks within that? Well
1: there's there's I mean generally speaking our our medical system is is geared to here's a drug here's a surgery here's something do this and then go live your life normal and and there's not a lot of you know they they're just not trained that way <clears throat> so i was put on a disease modifying drug and and back then The only disease-modifying drugs for MS were injectable, so I had to start injecting myself several times a week, uh, and and that's no fun. And some of your listeners may be living with diabetes, and and they certainly know it's no fun to inject yourself all the time. But that's that's what I was living with. And then a few years later, the first oral meds for ms came out on the market and i i switched to one of those so uh, there's that drug and then there's also <clears throat> for various symptoms they'll they'll try something that may that may help so in other words for ms it's common to to take some kind of pain medication it's common to take some kind of medication for fatigue and for confusion or focus so they cross purpose some drugs for anxiety, ADHD, depression, that sort of thing for treatment of some MS symptoms and and I've tried some of those over the years and most of them didn't work real well for me for very long so I I find mm, symptom management for me is more effective with cognitive and emotional and behavioral and environmental changes.
0: That's so interesting to me because that goes along the lines of something that doctors don't necessarily recommend much is our like lifestyle changes, um, whether it be behavioral mm-hmm. or mental. So um, I guess that would bring us to some of your thoughts, um, uh, like the skydiving and some of the things that you've been doing to, to mitigate uh, the mental aspect of it. So can you go into uh, some of the things that you've done lifestyle wise to, uh, to adapt?
1: Yeah, certainly on the more conventional front, then uh, I, you know, I start my day with, with meditation and I lift weights and I row and, and so I'm, I'm, working my body and working my mind and then i also spend some time writing each morning and and so those are things that i that i do that are not only intrinsically good they help me build and keep the necessary capacity i need so that i can uh go through a day and and build a life that i'm interested in living the the one that is probably more extreme and unusual is skydiving for me is is therapy it's it is uh you know and 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 the story behind me in skydiving i'll give you like the really brief uh synopsis i i wanted to be a skydiver from the time i was a kid in the 70s i thought it was fascinating i i really wanted to do it in the 90s while i was in graduate school i i did the training for the first time and i got a handful of jumps in but skydiving isn't really a hobby it's a lifestyle choice it it demands a lot of time and energy and i i just could not do that and complete a doctorate at the same time so that had to kind of be put on the back burner and and then you know so education and career and then family and young kids and then eventually health got in the way and i you know eventually despaired of ever being able to go back and And get to it so when i hit my absolute bottom a few years ago and i had had a a really serious exacerbation that had taken out a good chunk of my right frontal temporal region and so i'm dealing with severe cognitive issues emotional regulation um social signaling lots of stuff like that. I mean, I just, and, and it just really destroyed our family. And, and so I'm alone and, and then my dog even died traumatically in front of me. And I, so my career's in shambles, nothing that I, I, I wanted out of life, uh, could I see a path toward again? And, and I really despaired of, of ever finding a way. And and so I thought I will give myself finally at the end of the rope, you know, I literally couldn't see a path forward. I thought, I'm gonna give myself one more shot. I'm gonna give myself one more chance to try to reclaim something that I value about my life and that that gives me confidence and hope in life that I can still build something out of this mess that, that I, I value. So I said, I'm going to go back and become a skydiver. And that was in 2019. So I had to go back and, you know, I I did the training again and started now, now to get your A license, that's your first license in skydiving generally takes 25 jumps. I was dealing with wonky legs that didn't want to stay in control, and I couldn't feel the wind on my legs, so I I wasn't getting the right kind of sensory input that I needed. And so it took me 47 jumps to get my A license. And I had to do a lot of extra work in the vertical wind tunnels with with an instructor right there who was like holding my leg in position saying this is exactly where it needs to be so that i could learn even though i couldn't feel on like below my knee i could feel the tension say in my tendons behind my knee there in my in in my lower you know my in my lower thigh so i i had to get creative uh I had a, had a really good team of people at the drop zone that worked with me and, and helped me, and I got my license. And And in 2019, I, I logged uh, around 140 jumps or so. And, and then in 2020, I set myself a bigger goal. I said, I want to be a serious skydiver. And so what would that mean? Well, 500 jumps in skydiving is kind of an important milestone. 500 jumps is when you're qualified for all the levels of licensing in the sport and you are eligible for professional ratings. So, uh, you know, I, I wanted to do that. And what that would mean was if I were to do it in 2020, I would have to, from where I was then, I would have to log better than a jump a day in 2020. So... I set a goal of at least 366 goals and jumps in 2020. And, and I logged 370 and I broke 500 and I got my licenses and I got my coach rating. And so I came out a serious rated regular licensed skydiver. And, and that, was, that was really crucial to me. That was like, this is something that was for me a big goal, a stretch goal a goal that I didn't know whether I could achieve with, with my body and my brain. Because the very first thing they tell you when you're diagnosed with multiple sclerosis is avoid stress. Well, skydiving is an inherently stressful activity. Flinging your body at the earth is not natural under any circumstances.
0: So how, how did it feel for you to finally hit that goal, something that you didn't think was even possible for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was, <clears throat> I was, I was really proud of myself for the first time in a long time. I, 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 because on the one hand, I went back to skydiving to reclaim a childhood dream that I thought I'd lost, but on the other hand. <clears throat> I'm not naturally a fearful person but I had become afraid of my own body because my own body had betrayed me so many times in so many different creative ways and when you skydive you have to be able to save yourself I mean you're putting yourself into in a circumstance where <clears throat> you're headed to the Earth at 120, 150, 200 miles an hour or whatever, depending on the orientation that you're flying in, and there will come a point where you've got to deploy your own parachute or you're going to die. Now, we do have all kinds of safeties and backups and that sort of thing, but nevertheless, you every time you exit, you've got to deploy your, your, your chute, and you've got to pilot yourself to a safe landing and putting myself into a position where I had to do that every single day that was that was a big stretch goal for me and that gave me a lot of confidence that I could then carry into the rest of my life because I can say yeah as a matter of fact I'm the kind of guy who can fling myself to earth and save myself every time.
0: And you said that uh, the first thing a doctor will tell you is to avoid stressful situations. So do you find that there are different types of stressful situations, some that would um, benefit you and some that would not? Skydiving being one of the things that would be beneficial?
1: That is a a wonderful question, and this is this is a a topic that I spend uh, a lot of time on in the book. Your life lived well, snazzy book, snazzy cover, um, and there are two different kinds of stress. Okay, they're called distress, bad stress. And you stress, EU stress, right? You stress is good stress. And they're right next to one another at what I call the edge. So think of the edge as a ratio. It, whatever you have in front of you to do, whatever task it is, it has a certain demand to it. In other words, there's certain things that you're going to have to do in the right way in order to succeed. And we also have a certain capacity that we're walking around with in the world. If your capacity is really high and your demand is really low, well, you're going to succeed all the time and things are going to be very easy. But as we are more challenged and that demand comes closer and closer to the capacity we can deliver in that moment, we start triggering the stress response, okay? Our acute stress response. And that acute stress response, sometimes we, we call it the fight or flight response. And we talk about it being fear, but it's not. It's not really fear, it's challenge. When our system senses a challenge in front of us, it's gonna amp us up so that we have our bodily resources, our cognitive resources available to handle a really targeted task right here, right now in this moment. And then if the demand reaches over the capacity we can deliver well that's still stressful right but now it's distressing this is this is you stress going up here now it's distressing and we are overwhelmed and we will fail and if it's really quite a bit more demand than the capacity we can deliver in that moment then this is trauma and we have to understand that we have physical challenges but we also have cognitive challenges, emotional challenges, behavioral challenges, social challenges, all those things. And if we if we start looking at the world as challenges rather than as fear, that's the first step in that reframing. Because fear isn't the acute stress response. Fear is how we've framed the acute stress response fear is how we framed it when we say oh there's a challenge in front of me and i don't believe i can succeed i am likely to fail and that's going to hurt or that's going to have consequences that i'm really trying to avoid and fear fear is the is the next layer beyond pain in our system so pain is a is a really ancient somatic bodily system that warns us away from something that could be negative and harmful to us. Fear gives us a little more distance and a little more warning, okay? But it's doing the same kind of thing. And and what we have to understand is that our fear responses are adapted to be overly conservative. So in other words they're adapted to be overly protective they're, they're things and you've had this experience everybody listening has had this experience where there's something they feared and then they got into it and they were like oh i can do this this is a really cool experience right and 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 so it's it, we we have to learn to better interrogate our that fear response because sometimes it's holding us back when it should, and we should listen to it. But sometimes it's holding us back because it's overprotective. And and with skydiving, you see all the fear is on the inside of the door. When you are on the inside of the door, you know those first few jumps, you're looking out, and it's like this is freaking crazy. And but once you are out on the other side, it is the most mindful present in this moment living that you will ever experience and it is joyful and it's amazing but you got to go through the fear to get to it
0: yeah it seems that most spiritual experiences um, require you to sort of befriend your fear sort of put it in its proper function and surrender to it in a way Um, and then like you said on the other side of fear is, is joy and uh and true spirituality. Yes. So, can you talk a little bit about what it feels like to, um, to be falling, you know, from thousands of feet in the air spiritually?
1: Yeah, at, and 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 I'm so glad you brought this up because spiritual experiences are commonly like that because they are edge experiences, and 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 they're and then, you know that's part of those crucial edges that we have to interrogate, and and so for me the the experience of 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 hurtling through the sky now first the first thing that's important for people to understand is you don't feel like you're falling when you're skydiving you feel like you're floating you feel like you're flying and and the reason is because there's there's nothing nearby to give you the context of falling so you're just out there and and you know occasionally there's a cloud or there's another person or something and and that gives you a little context but you feel like you're flying you're floating and that is an amazing no pun intended uplifting uh experience that that is joyful you feel weightless suspended in this and and It has a characteristic of a spiritual experience in another way the second way is on the one hand you feel really really small and tiny and insignificant in the midst of this enormous endless sky and you see all the works of humanity spread out below you and the city looks tiny and and all that and you feel small but at the same time paradoxically you also feel expansive you feel so large and so big and so connected to everything it's just because you're seeing the world from horizon to horizon and and you are out there, and especially on days when they're like really beautiful clouds that nobody gets to see except from you know it's only skydivers and pilots that get to see it from this perspective, and pilots have a window in between them, and 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 or like on a sunset load or a sun sunrise load where you've got the beautiful magic hour colors that are filling the sky, and and you are there. With your friends, and and you are, like, say, tracking along the edge of a cloud, and that is a a beautiful, glorious experience. So, and then you know, at at like twenty seconds or twenty, like at five thousand feet, you've got twenty seven seconds left to live, and that's kind of high for experienced skydiver to to deploy at. But generally, will be deployed by three thousand feet and 3000 feet, you've got about 18 16 seconds to live something like that and and so the experience of of waving off and deploying your parachute is and then suddenly and and you're just flying among the clouds right and you're flying in the air and and you want to turn left, you want to turn right, you want to spin, you want to, you know, whatever you want to do, you're flying. And I had, I had a jump a little over a year ago where, if you look on my social media, you can see the, the little video clip that I posted about it, where as I'm flying, a bald eagle makes a couple of strafing runs on me, and then he comes right in ahead of me and flies in formation with me. Now, how can something like that not be just an, an awesome, humbling experience? And, and I find skydiving, yeah, it makes me feel competent. And, and yeah, like I've got this, but it is also humbling. And, and I'm not a, a religious person, you know, in a traditional sense in any way, but the only way I can describe it. So the basic way of skydiving, you've seen it is called belly to earth and, and we're, we're making like a big X in the sky. And then if you want to shoot forward and you want to travel along, then you sweep your arms back and you extend your legs so that you look like iron man okay and and so you can in less than a second accelerate from 120 miles an hour to 200 miles an hour i mean that is mind blowing right and when you do that the only way i can explain this the way that it feels is it feels like the hand of god just reaches up below you and pushes you through the sky because you can feel that air and you and and you just get into this groove and it's just and there's an amazing awesome spiritual feeling
0: that's beautiful
1: and almost everybody i mean a lot of times we'll we'll call it the church of altitude mm-hmm.
0: so the cover of your book mm-hmm. um, at what point during the jump was that photo taken and how was that photo taken?
1: Yeah. That's, that's so a, cool. That's a great good, I th- you know, people say, don't judge a book by their cover, but I wanted a cover that was the story of the book. And, and so I had a really specific image in my head that I wanted to be on the book. And and so it took us eight jumps over six weeks because the atmospheric conditions had to be just right. I had to have the sun on the horizon and you know we had to jump and I had to orient it so it was behind me and I wanted some big, beautiful, puffy clouds at the right place. And so <clears> on <throat> this jump, that cloud layer is about 4,000 feet. So I had to be a little bit above it. So I'm, that's about 5,000 feet uh, when I'm pulling to get the right look so i had to hit my mark and my cameraman had to come in and you know get it framed up perfectly and and we you know to get that shot and and we'd only have one shot out of the day because you can't get down and back up again and still have the sun where i needed it to be and all that so what i'm doing on that cover is my hands are you can see my hands up on my forehead and I'm about to make this big sweeping gesture as I extend my arms out, and that's a, a universal skydiving gesture. All skydivers recognize this. It's called the wave off, and the wave off is so we've we've done our free fall and we've had our fun, and you know we've done formations or free flying or whatever it is that we're doing, and now we have to get separate from one another so that we can each safely deploy our parachutes so we track away from one another and we give the wave off signal and the wave off signal says to everybody in my airspace watch out i'm about to take action to save myself and deploy my parachute and and that's the message that i wanted to get across to people with the cover of this book when you pick up this book You are about to take action to save yourself. And you may feel like you are out of control, like you're free-falling through your life, like uh, you are overwhelmed by all the circumstances of your life. But right now, you do this, and you are about to take action to save yourself.
0: So along with the book and all of the experience that you have, what sort of things do you offer in the realm of living your life well?
1: yeah as, as as a social behavioral scientist, I focus on all the non-medical ways that we can improve our quality of life and by improving our quality of life, coincidentally, we also often improve our health in some way as well but but I'm not focused on the health part of it i'm I'm focused on all the stuff that the medical therapeutic community doesn't focus on that's that's and and and, you know again we've got chronic conditions right so medicine doesn't have a solution for what we're doing they're just giving us something to maybe you know help manage some symptoms or something like that well i'm interested in living a good quality life and i want other people to live a good quality life and so uh we do Seminars and webinars, and uh, you know, guidance sessions, and uh, you know, in in a few months there'll be a mobile app, and you know, all these tools that are about helping you figure out which ones of these things are going to work for you. So, what I want to really emphasize, and and it's this point of difference, and that is, a lot of people are out there are are pushing. Well, here is the way that you need to live in order to live a good life. And somebody else has their way and somebody else has their way and none of them agree. And all of them will work for someone, but only some of them will work for you. So what I'm interested in is helping you develop the tools so that you can make better decisions for building the path that's going to work for you because your path isn't my path yeah maybe you'll end up wanting to jump out of an airplane but i'm not going to push that on anybody who doesn't want to do it and so so with the book with the curriculum with the other materials it's about giving you tools that are grounded in Thousands of studies and decades of cognitive and behavioral and social and in, in, you know emotional and, and and biomedical science that says these are things that work. But here's how you make a choice for which things can work for you. Because I don't want to be. Yeah, I don't want to be a guru. I don't want to be, you know, anything like that. I don't want anybody to follow my path. I want to empower people to be confident in their own paths.
0: Yeah, there's not enough of that for sure. And uh, I really appreciate that perspective and all the work that you do. And thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, Where can, where can we find you?
1: Uh, You can find me at yourlifelivedwell.co. And yourlifelivedwell.co will have we've got all the links to all the social you know, on social. Your life lived well is your L L well on pretty much all the platforms. And I am personally Dr KJ Payne, D R K J P A Y N E, pretty much everywhere. Uh, so you can certainly find those. Um, there's the Your Life Lived Well podcast,
0: which is uh, in,
1: it's an informational podcast and. It's available anywhere you want to consume your podcast.
0: Kevin, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And your story is very inspiring.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that. And, and, I, and you know, I'm, I'm delighted that people find it inspiring. But what I care about is what we do after the inspiration fades. Because the inspiration will fade. So how do we keep going? And, you know, anybody out there who wants to talk or anything, you know, I'm, I am delighted to, to help others in, in their journeys to try to still live full lives. Even if we have a diagnosis, even if we're a caregiver, even if we're, you know, medical health wellness professionals who are trying to figure out ways to do better for our patients, but still maintain a life for ourselves. So. Thank you again, Josh, so much. I appreciate it.